Welcome to PMA Takes on Tech, the podcast that explores the problems, solutions, people, and ideas that are shaping the future of the produce industry. I'm your host, Bonnie Estes, Vice President of Technology for the Produce Marketing Association, and I've spent years in the ag tech sector. So I can attest, it's hard to navigate this ever-changing world in developing and adopting new solutions to industry problems. Thanks for joining us and for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. My goal of the podcast is to outline a problem in the produce industry and then discuss several possible solutions that can be deployed today. Today's podcast is powered by our sponsor, AgriFresh. AgriFresh is a global leader and ag tech innovator in the produce industry with a mission to prevent food loss and waste and to conserve the planet's resources by providing a range of science-based solutions, data-driven technologies, and high-touch customer services. AgriFresh supports growers, packers, and retailers with solutions across the food supply chain to enhance the quality and extend the shelf life of fresh produce. With decades of experience across a range of crops, AgriFresh is powered by a comprehensive portfolio that includes proprietary solutions such as plant-based coatings as well as a complete line of packer equipment that helps improve the freshness supply chain from harvest to home. Visit agrifresh.com to learn more. AgriFresh, we grow confidence. Today's topic is biologicals. This is a recorded webinar focusing on biologicals and their viability as an alternative to conventional inputs. What you will hear is one of the most candid conversations I've been a part of on the promise and current status of biologicals as pest control and biofertility. Our guests are experts in the field. We are joined by James Pierce, Chief Scientific Officer from Boost Biomes, Karsten Treme, CEO of Pivot Bio, and Bryn Stanton, Head of Strategic Innovation at Join Bio. We will jump into the conversation with James Pierce of Boost Biomes, describing his company and their products. We are a startup microbials discovery company um, based in South San Francisco, and we have uh, 16 employees. And so what do I mean by a microbials discovery company? Well, we deliver uh, and discover and deliver live microbes uh, to serve as crop inputs. And and that can be uh, the full spectrum from row crops to uh, specialty crops such as fruit and vegetables. And indeed, it's the specialty crops that are our primary focus. And within that, we're we're focused on biocontrol. So these are live microbes that... um, prevent the infection of the fruit and vegetables by um, pests, um, bacteria and fungal disease causing agents. And those of you on the webinar can see one of our microbes in action here, uh, delaying um, gray mold uh, on raspberries. Um, And so some of you may know, there are many biological companies out there um, selling microbes and other biological inputs for agriculture, indeed, two excellent examples uh, are with me on this panel. What, what makes Boost Biomes different? Well, if I use uh, biocontrol 
uh, as an example to explain this. Traditionally, we've thought of, of biocontrol in the binary sense in that you have a, a pathogen in the soil or the roots or the leaves, and you have a plant and the pathogen causes disease on the plant. And then you introduce a, a, a microbial inoculant, which inhibits uh, the, the pathogen and, and hey presto, um, the pathogen goes away and the disease goes away. Well, if only it were that simple. Um, these two species do not exist in a vacuum. There are millions of other bacteria in these environments, in the soil and the, and the roots and, and fungi. Um, and collectively, we call that the microbiome. And this is a term that you will have no doubt heard in other spheres beyond agriculture. And within that microbial community, that microbiome, there's a pretty much infinite number of conversations going on between um, bacteria and fungi. And some are positive conversations. There are synergistic relationships between microbes that, that, that help each other's growth. And there are antagonistic uh, microbes that actively inhibit each other. And collectively, uh, these interactions we, we call the interactome. And what makes Boost Biome's discovery platform unique is that we we, we take into consideration these interactions when we discover and deploy microbes. And, and what does that look like in the lab? Well, I haven't got time to go into the details, but please uh, follow up with, with me afterwards if you would like to. Um, we basically recapitulate that interactome in the lab. And in doing so, we can identify and isolate synergistic pairs or sometimes consortia of several microbes that are synergistic. They support each other's growth. And we believe, and this is sort of the premise of our technology, that if you subsequently deploy those consortia back into the environment in which they came, they're more likely to, to be persistent and robust and, and therefore active when faced with the many biotic and abiotic stresses that they, they come up against in the environment. Think of it as sort of going out into the world supported by a, a sycophantic entourage of friends. You're more likely to survive with that group than, than alone. And then subsequently, you can screen that consortia for any activity you're interested in uh, that relates to crop health. And as I say, our primary focus is on biocontrol. And, and I think this, this premise of, of robustness and persistence and consistent performance, which has been a bane of microbials over the years, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. I, I think because our microbes have proved to have such broad applicability across a wide variety of environments, I think it's testament to this hypothesis. We, we can control pests in the field. We can control pests in the packing house along the, uh, the, the washing and spraying lines. And we can control um, pathogens in the clamshell all the way up to the supermarket. We can control fungal pests, bacterial pests, nematodes. And interestingly, we have products that get inside um, the, the, the crops where some uh, pathogens uh, lurk. For example, classically Panama disease of banana, we've shown we can get inside the fruit and control that disease, um, which is a, a major breakthrough. Also testament to sycophantic, synergistic microbes is the fact that all our microbes seem to play nice together in the fermentation tank. So although we have multiple microbes, we can co-ferment them, which is obviously has a, a cost of goods implication. And also because they're, they're robust and persistent, they seem to do well on the shelf and we have two year shelf life. 
products. So that's all I have time for, I'm afraid. Uh, a brief introduction, please reach out to me at, uh, at this email address, jap at boostbiomes.com. I'll be happy to answer any questions and get into any discussions if you'd like to, to partner with us. And now I, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing from uh, Carson and Brim and, and, and getting into discussions. And I'll be, I'll be defending the corner of the wild type native microbes against their engineered cousins from, uh, from across the bay. My name is Bryn, and I am the Head of Strategic Innovation here at Join Bio. Today, I'll talk to you a little bit about Join, our mission, and how we're engineering um, next-generation biologicals. And throughout the course of the next few slides, I'll very quickly tell you a little bit more about what that means. So I still consider myself, in fact, to be new to the ag space. I've been with Join for about four years now. And given that, the microbial complexity and um, content of soil still truly amazes me. For instance, it's estimated that a single teaspoon of soil contains billions of microbes. Now, over time, microbes and plants have evolved to exist in a mutually beneficial relationship with respect to one another. In this relationship, Plants provide microbes with food in the form of carbon. And in exchange for that food, microbes provide plants with essential nutrients. These nutrients are so important to crops that they go out of their way to cultivate and maintain their microbiome, as evidenced by the fact that they release up to one third of their photosynthate into the soil. At JOIN, we're looking to harness this long withstanding naturally occurring relationship that takes place between plants and microbes. But to take this even one step further by engineering our microbes to provide even greater benefits to our target crops. I'll walk you through at a very high level quickly, just what we mean or what this process entails of engineering microbes. So on this slide, I've likened the process to the plant biotech model, which is likely familiar to many of you. In this model, you take a beneficial trait and leverage biotechnology to insert that trait into a crop. The resulting crop then produces that beneficial trait whereby it confers protection to the crop. At JOIN, we've replaced the crop with a soil microbe. So specifically what we're doing is using biotechnology to insert this beneficial trait into a highly characterized soil microbe that we've confirmed to be highly associated with our crops of interest. It's that resulting combination of the soil microbe with the beneficial trait that constitutes the engineered microbe. We then apply that engineered microbe to our crop of interest, at which point that engineered microbe then confers that benefit to the crop. And so we really think about this as the microbe or the engineered microbe as the vehicle that's then delivering these traits to the target crop. We refer to what we're doing at JOIN as engineering better microbes for agriculture because we're able to go in and really increase the levels of the um, active ingredient or the, the beneficial trait or also provide um, access or exposure to that beneficial trait over a longer period of time. And so what you get um, by combining those two things is more consistency with our engineered microbes for agriculture. 
So if you haven't heard about JOIN, we are in fact a joint venture between Ginkgo Bioworks and Bayer Crop Science. Even though we are a joint venture, we are wholly independent from our parent companies. We're also a bi-coastal company. So we have a presence both in Boston and in Woodland, California. In Boston, we are located proximally to Ginkgo's high-throughput organism engineering foundry. So that's where the bulk of the microbial engineering work takes place. And then conversely, in Woodland, we're located within a Bayer facility. So of course, that's where the majority of our implanted work takes place. Having the parent companies we have provides us with sort of the best of both worlds. So through Ginkgo, we're able to have access to sort of bleeding edge synthetic biology tools. And through Bayer, we have uh, a lot of exposure to considerable commercial ag expertise, as well as expertise in the field of ag biologicals. And then the last thing to mention is that we've been around since 2017, and the company started at that time with an A round of over $100 million. Before I hand it over to Karsten, the last thing I want to share with you is the four key areas where we are applying or looking to apply our technology. So our technology is focused right now mainly on crop protection and sustainability, but we could also envision using our technology in areas of crop quality, and we'll talk about that a little later during the Q&A, as well as crop efficiency. We are right now most active in the areas across the top row, so in crop protection and sustainability, and it's our biofertility use case that falls under this umbrella of sustainability, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little later today. And then the last thing to mention is that we are primarily focused, or only right now focused on row crops. So we're taking these areas and, and applying them to row crops, and that would be mainly corn and soy. And so that's sort of a whirlwind intro to join bio, and with that, I will stop sharing and I am looking forward to sharing additional details throughout the Q&A. Thanks, Bren. Let's turn it over to Karsten. Hi, so my name is Karsten Temme, uh, one of the co-founders at Pivot Bio. And I'll start by sharing a bit about the cause that motivates my team, uh, that, that drives us. And that's, I probably shared with many of uh, the folks on on our webinar and, and podcast. Uh, and that's, we want to see every farm out there uh, be a lot more profitable uh, and, and have the kind of economics and, and business sustainability that means there's longevity, that that operation gets passed down to the next generation. And then ultimately, the, the ripple effect is that we've got a, a more resilient uh, agricultural system than we have today. Uh, better for the health of the soil on that operation, better for uh, the broad environment around us. And, and just ultimately, uh, the, the connection between us all gets a little bit shorter. And the, the passion I have, the passion my team has is to, to contribute towards that cause through the, the fuel that powers the nutrients every crop needs. Uh, and that's uh, rethinking what it means to, to use fertilizer and maybe coming up with a little bit better way to produce the nitrogen crops need and deliver it directly to the crop uh, in a way that doesn't have some of the side effects that using fertilizer uh, has had across the last century. And our focus, like Bryn mentioned, um, at, at Pivot, we are focused on the broad acre row crops. Uh, and really rethinking fertilizer for the main cereal grains of the world. 
Uh, it turns out that about half of our nitrogen fertilizer is used on just corn, wheat, and rice. And so the, the impact we want to have is, is to make that uh, better for a grower. So most of the, the um, growers in the U.S. who are in the Midwest um, planting a, a corn soybean rotation, uh, the dilemma they face is, is uh, on average, about half of the fertilizer that gets applied every year doesn't actually end up in the crop. It's not the fuel uh, that allows the, the crop to have sufficient nutrients to build the, the DNA, the protein, and ultimately the grain that, that drives their economics. Uh, and so that, that nitrogen is lost to the environment. It's either turning into nitrous oxide as a greenhouse gas, uh, or it's uh, running off to pollute our waterways. Um, and and the, the challenge is that fundamentally, moving big bulky tons of fertilizer around is, is just inefficient. It's hard to apply it to a field at the time when the crop needs it. And we're forced to bank inorganic nitrogen in the soil. It's like the wrong place to store nitrogen. Uh, so the more we can remove inorganic nitrogen from the equation, uh, the more we can produce it on demand for the crop. Uh, it has benefits for the economics of that operation. It has benefits for the sustainability of our environment. Uh, and ultimately, uh, it, it's going to lead to a, a more stable agricultural system. So what Pivot has done is, is go back to nature for inspiration. Uh, all of the legumes of the world have symbioses with microbes that live in their roots, uh, breathe in the nitrogen gas from the atmosphere and turn it into ammonia, uh, a form the plant can use. And, and that symbiosis, it, it actually exists for all the plants on this planet. Uh, it's just not as sophisticated. It's, it's not as evolved as, uh, as le legumes uh, for the crops like the cereals. Uh, so what happens is that symbiosis is a, a looser relationship between the soil microbes and the plant. And when we, uh, as humans, invented fertilizer 120-ish years ago, uh, we disrupted that symbiosis. We forced those microbes essentially into hibernation. And the key enzymes that, that carry out that process of turning nitrogen gas in the atmosphere into ammonia, uh, those have been dormant inside of the genome of these microbes. So what Pivot does is we rediscover those microbes. Uh, we reawaken those uh, genes, the, the enzyme that's critical to that process. And we package uh, that up into a product that's easy to use. So it simplifies the, the work on the farm. Uh, it shrinks the entire Haberbosch fertilizer factory into something that is uh, living and breathing and working on a daily basis to spoon feed the plant its nutrients. And, and ultimately, it's packing all of that nitrogen that's produced into the plant instead of uh, storing it in an inorganic nitrogen form in the soil uh, to be lost to the environment. So Pivot has, has spent the last decade uh, developing that, that breakthrough and bringing it into the marketplace. Uh, we've also built a, a business model that connects us directly with growers. Uh, so we sell our product um, to our customers uh, through independent dealers across the U.S. today. Uh, we've been serving our customers for three years now uh, across millions of acres in the U.S. And, and we really see it as, as just the beginning of, uh, of something different, something that brings us a, a bit closer to our customer. And, and ultimately, um, through the benefits to the farm, uh, a bit closer to all of us as consumers on a global stage. 
Uh, so what we've what we've started is is something that our aspiration is to to grow to be a a global company that uh, that serves um, farmers across the world. Uh, primarily is going to be focused on on the major cereal grains, and then uh, partner with uh, other types of companies to be able to uh, bring products into market for different types of crops. And and our goal is is to be a a, a partner uh, across agriculture for decades and decades to come. So uh, really looking forward to today's conversation around biologicals. Happy to talk on nitrogen to any degree folks want and and really jazzed up about the conversation. Great, thanks. All right, if everyone can turn their cameras and mics back on and we can start our discussion. So hopefully that was helpful for all the listeners to hear about the companies and their products and how they're approaching biologicals um, and give a little background. So thanks for that. Um, so as all the speakers mentioned, there are benefits for you for using uh, biologicals. There's a lot of benefits over some of the traditional inputs. So uh, the big question of today is, are biologicals a viable alternative to conventional inputs in pest control and fertilizer? They've been around for years, but represent only 10% of fungicide sales and are not making a huge dent yet in nutritional inputs. And skepticism still remains among a lot of growers. So why is this and how are your products different and how, um, how are you doing this differently that's going to make an impact? Um, James, why don't we start with you? Um, yeah, I think, I think in general, inconsistent performance, as I mentioned. Um, shelf life, they have, traditionally they haven't um, lasted very long on the shelf. And there can be compatibility issues, so you might have to ask the grower to adopt a separate practice. I think it's an unfair, it's, it's not a level playing field either. I don't think the agricultural industry or the food chain has, has been asked to pay the true price of chemistry. And so when you have a more sustainable uh, solution, you're, you're, you're up against, uh, uh, you know, it, something that's cheaper um, in terms of money out of pocket, but from an environmental perspective is a lot more, uh, a lot more dear. And therefore I think, you know, fixing that will, will go a long way towards doing this. And I think um, outside of the biocontrol space, there is no um, requirement to demonstrate efficacy. So you can sell something on Amazon tomorrow with no data. Uh, and that has led to a lot of, snake oil out there and that is sullied the reputations of decent products that i think are produced by at least the three of us um and, and we all suffer for it friend i can yeah sure would love to build upon that so i think it's important to keep in mind um, the intended use of biologicals and the goal and the, I think the goal has always been for biologicals to allow for a reduction in the use of conventional products, but not serve as an all-out replacement. So I think it's really important to keep in mind the specific context on, for under which their use is recommended. So first and foremost, I think you hear a lot of people mention that biologicals should be used as part of an integrated pest management program. So one input of many to control pests. And then taking that one step further, 
I think a lot of cases where you've seen biologicals to be quite effective are typically in spaces where they're controlling low to moderate disease pressure. So I think it's really important to keep these things in mind when you start talking about their efficacy. And I think once you start to get outside of this space of low disease pressure or using in combination with a whole suite of products, then you start to see some of that inconsistency and the bad rap that biologicals have have come to be known for over the years creep in. Karsten, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, maybe I'll take a little bit different approach and that's, you know, put on my hat as an entrepreneur and say, you know, why, why do I see um, a customer's eyes light up in some cases, but not others. And, and I think it comes down to better. And, and for a long time, I don't think biologicals have been better or able to deliver something that an incumbent product can deliver. And, and the real power of, of a new innovation to, uh, to captivate a, a customer's excitement is, is, is because it can do something that nothing else before has been able to do. And, and I think that's now possible um, because of so many new dimensions of science or technology that are coming together in, in a bunch of companies um, and, and beyond just the, the three represented today. And so we think about product design at Pivot as, as being able to get at the Achilles heel of uh, the thing we're trying to disrupt. Um, all the things that uh, classic inorganic um, chemical fertilizers can't deliver today, that's really the thing that if, if we can design a product to solve, it translates to uh, happy customers and and uh, a growing use um, of our product. Um, similarly, I, I you know I I've been inspired by the team uh, at Provivi and what they're trying to do to scale up the use of of pheromones as a, a biocontrol mechanism and and uh, really being able to have a different way of looking at what it means to be precise and accurate. Uh, something that really hasn't been possible at the same scale with maybe the the classic uses of chemistry. So um, kind of keeping with you and really what customers want and what makes them happy. So nitrogen is pretty cheap and it's pretty effective. So what is the incentive to change? And do you see legislation is going to force the issue for that? I, I think that innovation is, is best when uh, it stands on its own outside of legislation. Uh, and, and for us, I, the, while fertilizer may seem cheap um, because it's a commodity, it's still uh, often either the biggest or the second largest expense on broad acre row crop operations. And, and, and the, the challenge is um, much bigger than just the cost. It's, uh, it's the unpredictability um, of the performance of that product. Uh, everything's transacted today in terms of the number of pounds and dollars you spend to apply that nitrogen to the field, and nobody holds the fertilizer companies to account for how much of that fertilizer actually ends up in the crop, how much nitrogen is there to fuel the harvest. And, and that's the equation that we're trying to solve. So I when you buy nitrogen from us, it all ends up in the crop. Go ahead, James. I th I tell you, yeah, I'm gonna uh, um, fly the flag for, for Pivot. I, I think one of the major issues with nitrogen is that Generally speaking, you add it all at the beginning of the season when the crop doesn't actually need as much, and it's actually later on in the season, and the pivot microbe would still be there, and it's impossible 
to get more nitrogen. Well, it's hard to get nitrogen to the crop mid-season. And, and so I think a, a, an appeal of the pivot technology is it's getting nitrogen to the crop throughout the season. Um, if you need to add me to your sales team, Carsten, just... Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, I think that my parting shot is always, you know, I, 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 I love to be able to find everybody who has a like mind towards the, the bigger goal and we'll take you on the team any day and uh, okay, we'll, we'll you laud your praises throughout as well. So thanks. <laughs> James has got tied in her side gig. I love it. Um, so <laughs> I did want to add, so there are years when nitrogen is cheaper, but I think one of the things that doesn't go away is that it's not, in fact, cheap for the environment. It's quite taxing on the environment to be continually producing at an industrial scale the levels that we're producing. So I think one of the biggest incentives to change is what you would get as a concomitant reduction in both the production of greenhouse gas, but also our reliance on fossil fuels. So if we're even able to reduce just a teeny bit the amount of nitrogen fertilizer that's industrially produced that we're providing to our farmlands, this should go a long way in just um, leaving the, env the environment in a much better state. Well, I think, of course, all of us listening agree with this, um, but I just wonder, you know, if, if it's unproven technology in the grower's mind and they're maybe having to, to pay more or it looks to them like they have to pay more or just changing practices is it can be costly. The time involved, you know, to change a practice and to try a new product and worry whether it's going to work or not. I mean, you're, we're all kind of thinking, okay, in a world of full cost accounting, when we're really looking at what's happening to the planet, of course this makes sense. But when you're out there, Carson, when you're talking to customers, like, are they willing to take this leap and say, okay, I'll try this, even though I know nitrogen works well enough and I've been doing it forever. Like, how do you make that sale? Uh, you know, I, I, I'll try to frame my answer so it's it's maybe then applicable to some of the other types of applications for biologicals. Um, one of the things I think that's that's possible today more than ever in the past for biologicals is we can all talk about the mechanism of action, get into the details on why something works and why this new innovation or product uh, can deliver exactly the benefit we all claim. And 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 that is a great spot to be in. One benefit, I think, for Pivot is uh, Agronomy 101. Uh, every farmer has talked about nitrogen fixation for 100 plus years. It's, it's not a technical subject that we need to educate customers about. Uh, it's something that's near and dear um, to, to everybody that, that we interact with. And so for us, it's, it's really just delivering the, the proof that we have uh, we have broken through on on what's been this elusive holy grail, and uh, and and once we can demonstrate that proof for each customer, uh, it, it the floodgates open the the use of the product um, I, across all their acres follows very rapidly because it's it's a reduction in the amount of work um, required to manage nitrogen. It's it's an added peace of mind. It's it's all these other things about just the equation of nitrogen becomes easier. And uh, and I think that is really what we see is, is driving the, the, the flywheel for us.
Biologicals, for the most part, are better for the environment, decrease nitrogen runoff, improve soils, and result in fewer chemical applications. However, because many of the microbes used are genetically engineered, they cannot be part of an organic farm. Here, the panels discuss what this means to their companies and the products. I think organic farming specifies that your agricultural products have to be produced in a very specific way. And one of those specifications is that these products cannot be produced with any engineered components. And so by definition, right now, joint microbes cannot be used in a process for something that's destined to be organic. They just don't qualify today. I, I Yeah, that's, that's one... Advantage that, that, that we have, we are um, organic, we're wild type native microbes, we haven't engineered them. That said, it's still very hard. Um, when we ferment and formulate our microbes, in order to be organic, all the ingredients we have to use have to be, have to fall under a list called OMRI. Don't ask me what the acronym stands for. I, I would guess the O is organic and the I is ingredients and you can make the other two up. But basically that's very restrictive and expensive. And, you know, and I, I feel for, for, for Bryn and Carsten because ultimately, you know, engineered, um, cisgenics, um, gene editing, you can call it what you will. What's frustrating, at least for me, is the people that control what the consumer understands as organic are basically the NGOs who, you know, uh, uh, basically make the rules as to what is and isn't organic, no matter all of our best intentions. And so we can talk about EPA regulations until we're blue in the face, but ultimately if you can't get the non-GMO project on your label, then you're kind of screwed, no matter how how hard we try at our end. Thinking about kind of the problems to solve in organic, the the challenge with uh, organic um, today is is so many of the inorganic fertilizers used in broadacre conventional farming um, can't be applied into that organic system. So there's really a, a a shortage of routes to get nutrients into that into that field. And and so what we've done at Pivot, the way we structure our company is we want to be able to push the boundary of, of knowledge available to all of us. We want to be able to bring those innovations to market as fast as possible. And today we've, we put a, a constraint on our scientists to say, we want to avoid making products that are transgenic that would fall under, I think what the public has perceived as GMO um, to date. And, and the way it's, it's, it's constrained our, our product design is it means in some places we dig into our toolbox, we use things like gene editing, um, those are products that won't qualify for uh, an organic label. And then we've got um, products in the pipeline that uh, are built with more classic methodologies that, that do qualify. And I think the, the goal is, is ultimately to say you know, that the big challenge is we don't have as many tools for nutrients in an organic operation as you do in conventional. So we just have to, to really get to the heart of what's the allowable set of tools um, and then apply those to microbes, which are this, this wonderful vehicle for doing things that, that you just can't in a, any other way. So I think um, the, the, the conversation maybe over time could be, how do we 
how do we better meet those long-term goals for sustainability or performance? Um, and, and does that toolbox of what's uh, allowable expand or, or not? A question I, I would have for, for Bryn and Carson is given the majority uh, of, of your product is, is consumed by chickens and, and cows, is, is organic less of an issue for you than it would be for Boost, who are basically selling products that get sprayed onto raspberries, strawberries, et cetera? Is that, a, is that an ignorant statement? No, I don't think so at all. So, you know, as I mentioned, we're focused on row crops where for the most part, engineering is a widely accepted tool for, for row crops in the United States. So this is a question I was going to ask later, but um, for Karsten and Bryn, do you see applicability to the produce industry? Um, I know what your focus is right now, and I understand why, but do you see as you move forward that you would bring products into the produce industry and fruits and vegetables? I think the technology itself lends itself quite well to um, fruit and veg. I think the challenge is one that we've already hit on, which is this issue of public perception and sort of needing a pretty drastic shift there um, where people are open to biotechnology and engineering for, for food. Um, I, you know, I can look to pharma where biotechnology and engineering is perfectly acceptable. So the question is, how can we sort of um, shift a little bit more towards pharma and deal with some of the stigma associated with engineering when it comes to food. And if we can make progress and headway there, I can think of a bunch of different avenues like um, shishito peppers where they have just the right level of heat. So you're not playing Russian roulette every single time you eat one or, or something of that nature, right? You can, you can think of a bunch of different ways to leverage engineering for nutrition or quality or taste. So um, I think absolutely, Ivani, but we would need to see some shifts in the perception. And I think that really just starts with um, hopefully who's benefiting, why this is beneficial and, and just yeah. talking much more publicly about that. Can I, can I jump in? So I, I, I'm interested in, so those um, consumer-based traits are obviously attractive, uh, but how, how would a microbe effectively um, impact those? I mean, you've got, I think, pairwise are leading the way on genetics for taste and nutrition and, and flavor. Um, sure. How would a, it, it's, a harder, it's harder task for a, sure. for, a, to, sure. for a microbe to do that indirectly, wouldn't you say? Well, I think for us, colonization is key. So it just depends on where in the microbe that, or sorry, where in the plant that microbe is colonizing or where it's localizing with, within a particular plant. And so if you're getting into the right environment then, or within the right compartment within the plant, then you could start to impact some of these qualities. But yes, I, I see on principle how that might be a little more challenging to grasp. So the micro, in that case, you would have some kind of microbe that would colonize the plant that, that would it actually change the genetics of the plant or how, how would it have that kind of effect? This is very cool. <laughs> sure. So I think there's a bunch of different ways that you could do this, but um, microbes themselves wouldn't be changing the DNA of the plants, but they would be inhabiting parts of the plant and producing, you know, molecules that give you an interesting flavor profile or something of that nature. That would be one way to do it. You could also sort of spray them on where they're then producing these interesting flavor profile molecules on the surface of the plant. So there's a bunch of different ways to look at this. And, and um, 
could be really exciting. But again, I think whenever you start talking about food and engineering, there's there's a lot of concern that comes along for the ride. Right. No, I think, you know, those of us in produce in this area are really working at um, communicating with consumers and, and making sure we bring the consumer along. But there, there are so many exciting tools and ways to get at how do we adapt to climate change and how do we work with nutrition and flavor in, in these areas. So we can we can add microbes as some of the possible tubes that tools. That would be great. Um, so I have another question. Um, could the three speakers speak to persistence in the field or on the shelf? And then specifically for James in the same question, um, how do the infinite number of molecular conversations that they characterize in the lab shift over time, both in the field and on the shelf? Um, okay, I'll take, I'll take the first one. Um, I, I, I didn't see this question, I promise, but it, it basically <laughs> that, that's the beauty of our, that is our, our premise um, because our microbes uh, are deployed as consortia. They are self-supporting synergistic consortia, and, and therefore we've got evidence to show they persist longer. Uh, okay, not in the field. That's a very long, hard experiment. Um, but um, you know, in terms of colonization on roots, uh, etc., um, and how the the interactions change over time, they will. That's really that's really all I can say. I I, I can't. We, we know the microbiome of a corn root, uh, a strawberry leaf, whatever it is, changes over the course of the season because the plant is giving out different exudates, both on the surface and on, on the roots. And, and that will affect the microbiome, which in turn will affect who's talking to who. All I can say is that um, we know our, our, our microbes persist um, as an endophyte inside the, the plant for uh, up to 45 days. Um, what happens after that, I don't know. And frankly, once the food has been harvested, we don't really care. Um, if we can get the fruit off the field without any fungal disease, uh, or if we can uh, delay the onset of those horrible furry strawberries you, you find at the bottom of your clamshell, then then our our, our job our, our job here is done, and we can and we can move on. That's that's really all we can we can claim to achieve at the moment. Um, Carson or Bryn, any comments on persistence in the field? Yeah, I, I can touch on that quickly. So I think for us, all of our microbes that we're working with have been bioprospected from the field, are existing naturally already in close association with our crops of interest. As far as uh, persistence studies, from a regulatory perspective, we are required to do those studies or we're... Um, we're asked to do those studies. And so we're conducting them right now. Joint is still a relatively new company, but we've got, I think our second year of field trials. Nope, in fact, third under our belt. Um, so persistence still exploring that and can, can share more later. In terms of shelf stability, this for us is really key. And that's why this decision of the microbial canvas that you start with is so critical because we really want to be starting with microbes that are shelf stable for a number of years that can then just seamlessly fit into a grower's process. I think it, I think it's, inter it's an interesting answer. Like, so how you regard persistence as a good thing or a bad thing depends on what it is you're putting out there. Like a regulatory sure. person would say, that's a GMO microbe, I don't want it to persist. Whereas I take the question of, well, this is a, a live, a, a, a wild-time microbe that came from the field, so we want it to persist. Uh, and that that's what makes ours good. We're, we're not motivated to try and get, we don't 
we don't want our microbe to go away. It's naturally part of the environment. So the longer it's uh, out there doing its thing, the better. It's, it's, it's an interesting take on whether you think persistence is good or bad. Well, I, I, and I'll, I'll add on a layer to say, for us, it's all through the lens of performance. Uh, the microbes we work with are, are part of that native microbiome uh, within each of the crops um, that, that form our, our product portfolio. I, they, they start in small numbers when the, the seed is planted. They, they grow, they multiply, they flourish as the root system is developed and more of the, the photosynthate is exuded as sugars to feed them. But once the crop is harvested, they die off. And, and I think that that natural uh, life cycle, the symbiosis with the plant is, is perfect in the way we design our, our product because it means that um, we have the most number of microbes um, available to, to produce nitrogen for the crop at just the time the crop needs the most nitrogen. And, and to James's point earlier about the, the challenge with using inorganic nitrogen as a, a fertilizer is it, it's there in the field at the wrong time and, and uh, the microbiome uh, is able to produce uh, at just the right time. And so I think persistence um, maybe is, uh, is just the first layer of thinking about microbes can be present or absent at different uh, densities. They can change that relationship with the crop throughout a growing season. And, and that can be a very powerful design tool in tackling some of the problems um, we all face. You know, so for, for Pivot, I think we, we've done a lot to build a, a model around those broad acre row crops, the cereals and the technology is applicable into produce. Uh, the challenges are gonna be slightly different. And that's where I think we need as much um, by way of partners for go-to-market as we do for really fine tuning what the microbes can do on a, a day-to-day basis um, for the crop that, that gets at the, the limitations of using inorganic fertilizers today. One of the questions I wanted to ask is, um, so another thing that's been talked about a lot recently is around um, carbon neutral foods, carbon sequestration and carbon credits. Do any of you see um, how biologicals could capture some of this value that's being thrown at and, and talked about in carbon farming? I, I'll, 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 this is a hot one for me. Um, I Technically, yes. Microbes can certainly um, be a big part of the the carbon farming um, world, but commercially there is just no currently a path forward. Um, all the carbon credit systems at the moment are based on models, and those models are, are built only on practices that have been uh, ongoing for at least ten years, and that basically leaves you, leaves you with cover crops and no till. So if you had a microbe that you said, well, I put all this organic matter in the soil because I've got bigger roots, great, but you're going to be taking carbon measurements for the next 10 years before anyone's going to give you a carbon credit. Um, I also think that there's, you know, putting organic um, carbon into the soil is a very short-term fix because what happens to organic carbon? It gets respired and therefore releases CO2 into the ground. I think a much more intelligent play would be to mineralize carbon and, and microbes can certainly do that. I also think it's very tough at 15 uh, bucks a ton of carbon. I think to try and persuade a grower to change their agronomic practice uh, at that price, I, I'm told 
it's, it's just not viable. It needs to be in the 50 to 60 bucks range. So do we need tax incentives to get people to do that? Um, and there's, and I'll be interested to know what, um, my, my two nitrogen replacing friends on the panel will think about this. There's currently no nitrogen trading system or any, in fact, any model that will give you a credit for input. So, you know, even for boost, we're replacing chemistry with a, with a biological. There is an input play there that is, you know, relevant to the greenhouse gases, and yet there is no way of capturing that. I'm told they are developing models that will allow for other inputs and other practices. But right now, anything you see on a website claiming X bucks an acre for carbon credit is, is really noise right now. I appreciate the practical response to that question, James. I wanted to tackle it from the microbial side of things. Um, so microbes actually are really good at naturally pulling carbon down into the soil where it can be stored for hundreds and in some cases thousands of years. And so if we're able to pull more carbon into the soil, we'll eventually end up with a more fertile soil. And so I think from the microbes perspective, if we can enhance a microbes ability to do this through engineering, that, that this could be something that could really, I would say, at the end of the day, result in in more nutritive soil. Um, so just from the microbial perspective alone, I think this is something that um, is achievable. And I, and I don't think it would have to be far outside of a grower's regime if you could come up with something where that microbe was simply part of the seed package. I, yeah, I'd agree. I think it's an exciting time. Uh, James, you highlighted just the challenge. Nobody's been able to link these things together to date. And, and there's many, many folks interested in, in working on the space. Um, so maybe we'll see some breakthroughs over the coming years. I, at the end of the day, ag's footprint is, is driven by nitrous oxide emissions and methane emissions from livestock. And I, and then we have this um, potential to sequester carbon uh, if we can figure the permanence challenge out. I really the the nitrous oxide. The more we can reduce inorganic nitrogen in the soil, the bigger impact um, we have there. And and for the first time, we now have uh, a new class of products, um, not just from Pivot, but uh, potentially Join uh, and many others that are all going to contribute to. Uh, changing those inorganic nitrogen levels in the soil. And, and the science tells us that uh, permanence for uh, carbon sequestration is ultimately linked to inorganic nitrogen levels as well. So there's a lot of potential. Uh, we still need these business mechanisms to allow uh, record keeping, um, you know, measurement, verification, being able to link those into the markets. Um, but it's, uh, it's at the early days of something that could be really powerful. And, uh, and some of those uh, opportunities are going to have immediate impacts. And some of those are going to depend on, on solving that, that challenge of permanence. That's it for this episode of PMA Takes on Tech. Thanks for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. Be sure to check out all our episodes at pma.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and I would love to get any comments or suggestions of what you might want me to take on. For now, stay safe, eat your fruits and vegetables, and we will see you next time. <music>